Good morning. It's good to see you this morning as we begin a new series looking through the book of Luke. We will spend the next few weeks looking at the first couple chapters of Luke and what we consider the Christmas story. But then after Christmas, we will continue on well into 2024 looking at this amazing gospel. As uh, I'm sure you are familiar, if you have uh, seen any newscast, looked at any newspaper, saw any online news blog, the nation of Israel has faced incredible adversity over the last several weeks. We look at the terrorist attacks and the scorn of many throughout the world against Israel. In fact, Today in our state capital, or at our state capital, there's a uh, gathering of uh, people, and I'm guessing that uh, they aren't going to have many kind words to say about the nation of Israel. And we as a church have been praying for Israel. And Israel is in the center of God's plan. We see his focus upon that chosen nation throughout Scripture. And we also see the adversity that Israel has faced throughout its history. And so as we begin this morning, and it ties in with our message, I'd like us to pray together for the nation of Israel, and for our world. So would you stand with me, and let's pray together as we consider God's hand and look for God's hand upon Israel and upon our time together today. Father, we are amazed at your grace and goodness, your plan throughout history, recognizing that your plan involves the nation of Israel. Lord, as we've seen what's taken place over these last several weeks, as we've been praying, Lord, we ask for your grace upon those many people who have been affected by what's taken place. We pray for leaders in Israel and around the world. We pray that they would make decisions that would be God-honoring decisions. We pray for the people who are struggling with what's taking place, the fear that's taking place throughout our world. Lord, help us to look to you. Help us to recognize you are almighty God, and we can trust and follow you. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, and as we look a little bit at what takes place in the nation of Israel in the beginning of the New Testament, and the coming of the Messiah. Help us to recognize that you are in control and that we, again, can trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, just like today, as the New Testament opened, Israel was in a place of adversity. But in the midst of adversity, just as adversity today we can see hope. We can see sparks of hope in a, spark, in a hopeless world. 
We see that in verses 5 through 7 of Luke chapter 1. Sparks of hope in a hopeless world. Follow along as I read in verse 5. It says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. Now the hopelessness that was felt in Israel was overwhelming. The Old Testament ended with the writing of a prophet named Malachi some 400 years before our reading here in Luke 1. And the time between the end of the Old Testament, the time of Malachi, and the Gospels, again about 400 years, are called the 400 silent years. God seemed to be silent and Israel waited. But we have to understand that while they didn't hear God's voice, God was not inactive. Let's look at some of the highlights, or for the nation of Israel, often lowlights that took place during that 400-year time frame from the end of Malachi to the introduction here of Luke, the New Testament, the Gospels. The Old Testament ended with the Medo-Persian Empire as a world ruler. But Alexander the Great changed that. He attacked Medo-Persia, or the Persian Empire, and rapidly became the world power. But Alexander the Great died at the age of 33, and his kingdom was divided among four generals. Now you have to understand, the nation of Israel, beginning with Babylon, was, was conquered, and then through the, the Persians as they conquered Babylon, this second world empire, and now the Greeks, under the reign of Alexander the Great, was a world power, and, and Israel was still a conquered people. But as Alexander died there at the age of 33, and these four generals took power over four regions of the world. Two of those generals were named Ptolemy, who was given the area of Egypt, and Seleucus, who was given Syria. And during this time frame, Israel took the brunt of the battles between these two regions and these two leaders and those who led after them. Because Israel was right in the middle between that area of Egypt and the area of Syria. And things went to crisis level when, when a Syrian ruler following, uh, following Seleucus down the line named Antiochus Epiphanes became ruler. The title Epiphanes means God made manifest or God incarnate and, and Antiochus Epiphanes saw himself as deity and he was ruthless. He killed thousands of Jews thousands and thousands of Jews. He did not allow them to observe the Sabbath. He put a statue of Zeus in the temple and he sacrificed a, a pig on the altar in Jerusalem just to humiliate the Jews. But as things seemed to be going so poorly, there's a group of Hasmonean priests named the Maccabeans. And they were able to drive their enemy out of the temple 
And in celebration of that, they implemented an eight-day celebration called Hanukkah, the celebration of lights. And then in 63 B.C., the Roman Pompeii gained power and and Romans became the world power. And, And Pompeii placed a man named Herod the Great over the region of Judea. Now, Herod was a descendant of Esau. He was an Edomian. But the throne of Israel was to be in the hands of the descendants of Jacob, not the descendants of his brother Esau. And so this was another slap in the face of the Israelite people, of the Jews. Now we're familiar with Herod the Great from what's going to take place shortly after this in the Christmas story. Herod the Great was the one that had all the baby boys in Bethlehem killed when he heard that there was a new king that was born in Bethlehem. But we see throughout these hundreds of years, Israel waited and waited for their promised Messiah to come. But in the darkness, we see a spark. God's promise of the Messiah is about to be fulfilled. We're introduced to a godly priest named Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. Verse 6 tells us that they were both righteous before God. They were walking in the commandments and ordinance of the Lord blameless. They were godly people in a nation that was struggling to follow God. But verse 7 shares more pain because they, infa- they face the incredibly hard circumstance of being childless. They desired so much to have a child, but they were not allowed. Now, I know for people, probably people in this room, you face that pain of, of not being able to have a child. For the nation of Israel and the culture in which they lived, there was a stigma that said that not, able, not being able to have a child was a punishment from God. But we see that even in all the pain that these two people, Zacharias and Elizabeth, stood out as godly individuals. Another sign that Zacharias was a godly follower of a godly follower but also a godly husband, was that he prayed rather than divorced Elizabeth. And you say, what do you mean by that, John? Well, it's one of the ways that people could, one of the permissible reasons for divorce for men in Israel was if their wife was unable to have a child. But instead of divorcing Elizabeth, together they prayed. And they prayed for God's intervention in their circumstance. And they had prayed for years that God would give them a child. But as the years progressed, their prayers were not answered. Luke writes there in verse 7, they were well advanced in years. A polite way to say that they were old. They were well past childbearing years. But God was preparing to fulfill his promise through the first of two miraculous births that we read about in the Christmas story. Obviously, we focus on the second, the birth of Jesus Christ. 
But this verse, or this birth, the birth of John, was miraculous also. The first of two miraculous births in the Christmas story. And even the names Zacharias and Elizabeth point to the hope that we can have in God. Elizabeth means God of the oath, and Zacharias means God remembers. You put those together, God remembers his oath. And for 400 years, they'd been waiting and waiting, but God did not forget. And while he appeared silent, God was active in preparing and setting the stage for the Messiah's arrival and also the arrival of his promised forerunner. We see in verses 8 through 10, excuse me, that Zacharias was chosen for a special duty. At the time, there was estimated that there were about 20,000 priests in Israel. And so they would spend the time in their they would spend most of their time in their hometowns but twice a year for a week each time they would travel to Jerusalem and spend a week serving in the temple they would do that again twice a year they were divided into divisions and and there were divisions for each one week period and then 6 months later they would spend another week there serving in the temple and performing the duties of priests there in Jerusalem and so this takes place during one of Zacharias's week periods there in Jerusalem at the temple. And he was chosen for a once-in-a-life opportunity to burn incense in the holy place. They would, they would have lots, a way of choosing who would be the priests that would be given that special privileges. And many priests throughout their whole lifetime were never chosen And once they were chosen, they couldn't be chosen again. And so we see here in Luke chapter 1, Zacharias, as he's serving there in the temple, gets this amazing duty to go into the holy place and and burn incense. They would go and they would trim the wicks and they would burn incense and then they would come back out and they would pronounce a blessing upon the people. Now you have to understand the people would be gathering and they would have a morning and an evening time this would take place and people would gather outside in the court and they would be praying and that priest would have that incredible honor to to walk inside the holy place and stand right in front of the entrance to the holy of holies. And if you're not familiar with, with the temple, the holy place was, again, a very special place that, that very few people could go into. Again, the priest here was one example of that. And then the holy of holies, once a year, the high priest could go there and offer a sacrifice for the people of Israel. And so, Zacharias had this incredible duty. And you wonder what he was thinking as he was thinking, wow, this is an incredible honor. Notice what it says in verses 8 through 10. It says, so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, in other words, it was his division's week to be there at the temple, 
According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. But while he was fulfilling this special duty, Zacharias was met by a special guest. He had an encounter with an angel. Look at what it says in verses 11 and 12. It says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Just like others, Zacharias was filled with fear when he encountered a glimpse of the holiness of God. You'll see that when, when people interact with God or, or even an angel. It always seems to say, and they were afraid. We see that with the shepherds here shortly. We see that with Mary as she encounters Gabriel here in the next verses after our study this morning. But in verses 13 through 17, we see the angel sharing a special message. Follow along, beginning in verse 13, it says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call him John, his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." The angel begins, as often we see when they, we have angelic encounters, by sharing with Zacharias that he did not need to be afraid. It's interesting, 365 times in Scripture we read, do not fear or don't be afraid. 365, an interesting number, isn't it? He then revealed to Zacharias that Elizabeth would have a son and they were to name him John. Not only the, the promise of a birth, but a gender reveal. Now, gender reveals are big things now, aren't they? Now, when Irene and I had our children, it wasn't that big of a thing. Uh, but now, it's a big thing. I mean, you have parties, they pop balloons with gold, or blue or pink confetti, depending on the gender, and, uh, you know, they have fireworks. You, you can go to a fireworks stand, and you can buy a firework, and it's got just a brown basic case, but you know if it's going to shoot out blue sparks or pink sparks. I mean, amazing things that they do for gender reveal. Again, in our time, you know, we, we maybe told family and friends, and some people don't even want to know. You know, but I guess back then there were two genders, so it was not as stiff. Well, <laughs> there's still two genders now, by the way. Sorry, a, a bad joke there. But so here is the angel saying, you're going to have a son. No balloons or fireworks, but an amazing message. 
And the angel then connected the birth of John with the Old Testament prophecy of the forerunner of the Messiah. From the book of Malachi, we see a couple mentions of this. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This promise of this forerunner of the Messiah. And then we go to Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now notice these next words compared to what we just read in verses 13 through 17 of Luke 1. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. You see, the, the pronouncement here by the angel in, verse, in verses 13 through 17 of Luke 1 quotes from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, something that I'm sure did not go unnoticed to Zacharias. Also find something very interesting, an amazing connection between the end of the Old Testament and the end of the New Testament. The last word there of the Old Testament, Malachi 4.6, is the term curse. But look at some of the last words of the New Testament in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible of the New Testament. It says in verse 3 of Revelation 22, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And then go to the very last verse, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. What a difference. But what was the difference? The difference was Jesus Christ, that Messiah that we're being introduced here, we're being introduced to in Luke chapter 1. Jesus the grace of God that removes the curse. But it doesn't stop here, this conversation in verses 13 through 17 with the pronouncement. We see it continues in verses 18 through 20 as Zacharias doubts the message. We see the doubting priest. Beginning in verse 18, it says, Then Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. Even in the uh, fear and other things going, he did get something right there. He didn't call his wife old. He just gently said she was well advanced in years. But he was old. But notice Gabriel's response, and I can call him Gabriel because he now introduces himself. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Zacharias questioned the message. How could they have a baby when they were so old? They had prayed for years with no response, and now it, it had to be too late. 
You know, Scripture doesn't tell us this, but I wonder as time went on, did they stop praying? Fervently praying and praying and praying, but God didn't answer. He seemed silent. Had there come a time when that was taken off their prayer list? Or maybe only occasionally mentioned, but not believed that it would ever happen. Do we ever struggle like that? Pray for something, fervently pray, but as time goes on and there seems to be no answer, our prayers become fewer and fewer on that subject and maybe even stop completely. But I love the angel's response. I love Gabriel's response. I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. He revealed his name, Gabriel, one of only two angels in Scripture that their names are revealed, Gabriel and Michael the archangel. Gabriel was God's mailman. He carried God's message to people. We'll see shortly in the next verses that that he would be sent by God to Mary about six months later to tell her that she would be the mother of the Messiah. Now, we see that Zacharias was a godly man, a faithful priest. But in this story, he lacks faith. And there were some things that should have helped his faith that God could, could and would fulfill his promise and that God could miraculously allow him and his wife Elizabeth to have a son. Even in the pronouncement itself, it was connected with the Old Testament prophecy that Zacharias knew so well. The nation of Israel had, as a whole had, was so familiar with these promises of God of the coming Messiah and the one that would come to introduce him. And Zacharias as a priest would regularly be spending time looking at these promises, the prophecies of this coming Messiah and the forerunner who would announce him. But yet he doubted. And Zacharias could also go back in the history of his nation, a history that they so often repeated and shared. History of of the amazing miracles of God. Things like as they were going out of Egypt, the plagues that allowed them their freedom and then the amazing trip to the promised land and and the victories over the enemies and so many dire situations where they saw the power of God come through. But two specifically jumped to my mind. At the beginning of the history of Israel, we were introduced to a man called Abram, later to be known as Abraham. And Abraham and his wife, Sarah, who had a child when he was 100 and she was 90. 
Zacharias and Elizabeth were old or well advanced in years, but Abraham and Sarah made them look like young pups. And what about Hannah, who God seemed to ignore her desire for a child? But then God gave her the blessing of a son named Samuel. But yet, even though seeing history, Zacharias doubted. And then, the obvious, he was standing in the holy place talking to an angel. Seems like little different circumstances, but even in that, Zacharias doubted. And I look at Zacharias and and we're amazed at his story and his faithfulness to God through so much of his life. But why did he fail here? You know, he failed for the same reason we often fail in our faith. We take our eyes off or forget to consider the power of and faithfulness of God. So we see that Zacharias doubted, and because of his unbelief, he would not be able to speak until after the baby was born. (laughs) It's interesting, God had not spoken for 400 years, and now he gave his message to a man who was going to have to be silent for nine more months. Zacharias became a priest without a message. He became a prophet without a voice. And so all this was taking place there in the temple, in the holy place. The conversation between Gabriel and Zacharias, we don't know how long it took, but it definitely took a lot longer than the average priest going in, uh, trimming the wicks, putting the incense, walking back out. People outside began to wonder, what's going on? Why is he not coming out? And we see that revealed in the blessing that was not given in verses 21 through 23. Verse 21 says, And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them, and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. So when Zacharias finally came out of the holy place, he could not pronounce the Aaronic blessing, the blessing of Aaron, that the priest was to give to the people. They would come out after they would do that. And by the way, they would back out. A very interesting thing. There were some special things they would do. They would prostrate themselves. They'd back out. They'd come out. And they'd turn to the people, people out there praying. And they would share a blessing. We're familiar with that blessing from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, which says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
So the so people were wondering, what, what took place in there? Why was it so long? Why is he not giving the blessing? Zacharias was speechless. A little game of charades, I'm sure, went on. But he couldn't tell them the amazing story. And so then verse 23, and I like the uh, concise writing of Luke. It says, and so it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, he departed to his own house. We don't know what day of his week-long service time this took place in, but he finished out the week and he went home. He went home to silently share the amazing message with his wife Elizabeth. But in verses 24 and 25, we see hope restored. Verse 24 begins, Now after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. God fulfilled his his promise, and Elizabeth rejoiced in the grace of God, not only that he was his promise of the Messiah, but that God allowed her and her husband to be a little part in being the parents of the forerunner. Now, poor Zacharias couldn't sit at the coffee shop and tell a story. (laughs) Of course, in some ways, maybe that wasn't too bad, because I'm sure what the people would have said, yeah, right. But for nine more months, while God continued to work, Zacharias was not allowed to share. The prophet with no voice. So what about lessons that we can learn? There are many lessons. I doubt any of us are going to go home today and have an angel show up and share some miraculous fulfillment of prophecy but it doesn't mean that God's not at work still at work in our lives and God's still not miraculously working because he is each and every day in us and around us so what are some lessons we can learn well we can learn that God can do the impossible you go just a few verses further we stopped in verse 25 and then in the very next verses we're introduced to this young lady named Mary And she speaks to the same angel, Gabriel. Just like with Zacharias, God sends Gabriel to Mary with a message. And we're familiar with that message. But notice what it says in verses 36 and 37 of Luke 1. It says, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her own age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. (laughs) Guess what? God did the miraculous with Elizabeth. God's going to do the miraculous with you, Mary. God can do the impossible. We must not forget. But also God's silence does not mean his absence or indifference. Look what it says at the end of verse 13 of Psalm 145. It says, The Lord is trustworthy in all his promises and faithful in all he does. And 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is faithful. And when he seems silent or distant, he is not. 
he is faithfully and actively working. And we also see that God alone is our hope. And in my life, I must wait on him. Psalm 27, 4, the psalmist says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. The nation of Israel, 400 years. Where was God? Now, obviously, individuals, there were things going on, but it seemed that as a nation, God had stepped away. And they had to wonder, will God ever fulfill this promise of the Messiah that's going to come and rescue us? Year after year after year. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, you know, I have whatever circumstance going on in my life. And it seems like God is unaware or maybe he doesn't care. Oh, no. For Zacharias, it it took an angel (laughs) and his own silence as he was made mute. But whatever our story, whatever our circumstance, God can do the impossible. We can trust him. He is not absent or indifferent, and he is our hope. I want to close with these words. God will always give us what is best. Now, it is not always what we may want, but it is always what we need. And we can trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that as almighty God, you care about us. We see your care for the nation of Israel and your care for the world in sending your son Jesus Christ to provide forgiveness from sin and hope for eternity. Lord, as we celebrate the Christmas season this year, may we focus on Jesus Christ. Lord, may we recognize that you are our hope and his sacrifice for our sins can provide the salvation that we desperately need. Help us to trust in you. Help us to be faithful and full of faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.